Hello, hello, and welcome to the Literati Cast. I'm Jennifer Loughran. I'm a senior agent at the Andrea Brown Literary Agency. This is a brand new podcast. Welcome. It's going to be all about kids' books, kids' book publishing, writing, craft, gossip, maybe. Little House on the Prairie, murderers. I don't know what we might talk about. All of it. Everything. I have lots of publishing world friends who will be joining me throughout these episodes. And today I'm super excited because I'm going to talk to one of my favorite authors I don't rep. She is going to help me answer some questions, and we'll get into that in a couple of minutes. But before we do, I wanted to say this. Many years ago, I was doing a talk at a conference. It was a long talk, like an hour and a half or something, all about how to work with your literary agent. And at the end, a woman in the front row raised her hand during the Q&A and said, what is a literary agent? And I was like, kind of taken aback, honestly, because, uh, hello, I'd just been talking about literary agents for the past hour and a half. But then I realized that maybe people don't know, like they don't even know what they don't know. Or they kind of know, but they're embarrassed to ask for specifics. So a good place to start. A literary agent is much like a an actor's Hollywood agent or a sports agent that gets endorsement deals for your favorite sports celebrity. A literary agent works with writers to sell their books to publishers in exchange for commission on the sale. They negotiate fair contracts. They work on the author's behalf, not just before the book sale, but also throughout what it can be a very long and fraught process of publishing. I know that I will get more into the specifics of like literally what literary agents do as this podcast continues, because that's kind of like uh, what it's about. But I felt like that was a great place to start, at least. So we're all on the same page. This is what an agent is. So now I feel like I can introduce our main guest. So Laurel Snyder is an author. She also is, full disclosure, one of my best friends and favorite people on Earth. Her latest books are Charlie and Mouse, a hybrid early reader picture book from Chronicle Books that will make you smile with delight. It is an absolute joy. Please read it to your preschool age kids. And also Orphan Island. Orphan Island is a magical and heartbreaking middle grade novel. It is just out from Walden Pond Books, which is a division of HarperCollins. I'm not going to jinx this book by saying too much more about it. Like, I feel like it exists in a really special place. And um, and I just have to say, please go read it. However, that's not the point. She's not here to talk about her books. She's here to help me give advice. So, uh, Laurel, are you there? I am here and happy to be here. Are you ready to give some advice to people? I am, unfortunately, always ready to give advice to people. I don't think that's unfortunate. I live the same way, completely ready to give my advice at any provocation. I'm also, it should be said, and I think you are the same way, perfectly willing to admit when I was wrong and or like offer a caveat or whatever. 
um, yeah. to my advice. Like I recognize that my advice is not always good, but I think sometimes it is. So you might as no, well. No, I think a lot of times it is. Okay. So I had got some questions into the Tumblr that are really kind of author questions, to be honest. So one is, hi, Jennifer. I just got an agent, which is great. Yay, congratulations. Unfortunately, now I am suffering from an acute case of imposter syndrome. I think a lot of female writers may feel like this at some point. I'm curious if you have any words of wisdom or encouragement for the newly agented and kind of terrified people out there. Huh. Um, so my story is backwards. Like I, I sort of was in the pro I, I basically sent my work out and, and was in slush and then found an agent like when my slush was going to committee. So I did everything backwards. So I actually didn't have that exact moment of having an agent, but not a sale. But I mean, I think the imposter syndrome thing doesn't ever totally go away. And I, the number of times that I have been with somebody I think of as a famous author or an award-winning author or a best-selling author and and heard them kind of express self-doubt or that they might not ever write again or that the next book wouldn't live up to their last book. So in some ways, I think the advice is, I hate to say it, but kind of get used to that feeling that it, it recurs. Like, well, no, I mean, that sort of, that is a state that you sort of have to live with that the, the imposter syndrome is, is good fortune. Like that's what that is, is like being willing to accept your good fortune. And um, I do think community helps with that. I think, I think exactly what this, I, she, it's a, I assume it was she, cause she's talking about female authors. I think that, I think that reaching out and building a small group of people that you feel you really can be transparent and honest with about those kinds of feelings and being able to share them with other people who are exactly where you are in your career can be really helpful. I just a couple of years ago sort of became part of a small group in like a sort of like a forum situation and they've become like family to me, you know? And again, like those, those you'll progress with those people, you know? So you'll have imposter syndrome as a like group. regularly, like a mid list self doubt. And then there will be like state award list self doubt. And then there will be, you know, reprint self doubt or going out of print self doubt. Like, They're just all of these stages. Well, and I mean, I think it's interesting that you say this because I feel like that's absolutely true. And a lot of people, especially just starting out, don't really realize that things like rejections still happen constantly, even when you're famous or like you're going out of print or whatever. Things go out of print, even if you're famous. So these feelings are definitely normal. And I can say... From an agent's perspective, I see this a lot. I think that, you know, you mentioned female writers specifically, and I think that it's probably true that maybe a lot of men seem at least more naturally confident and willing to accept praise. (laughs) So that um, sometimes I think can play out like women feel more reticent to accept Right. I I was just, I was just reading something today about that, about sort of, it was this piece about a sort of pretty privilege that Nick Stone posted on Twitter this morning. And Mm, it it was really interesting. It was by a trans woman who passes as cis and now has gotten to a point where she has privilege because she's very, very beautiful. And what the sort of the, the sort of shift in her brain around that of like not having ever had that kind of privilege and now having that privilege. Anyway, it was talking about 
sort of the self the self deprecating comments we make when someone gives us a compliment, <laughs> like as women, you know, somebody says, "Oh, you look so nice," and you go, "Oh, don't look at my zit," you know, or whatever it is. <laughs> you just don't know how to take the compliment. I think it is the same instinct, but I will say, like, and I have been known to rant ad nauseum about gender stuff. But I have several male friends who are authors who really do experience a lot of this because they don't feel the confidence that they feel like men typically present as having. Right. And so that's its own disconnect of like, all the guys seem confident. Why don't I feel like them? So I think I think we've all got these crazy inadequacy things. And again, like they don't go away. They the number of times that I've been in a situation where like I was on a panel and I looked at the other people on the panel and I was like, how did I end up here? And then my, and often, honestly, my agent will say like, because you belong there, like, because you're all mid-list authors with four books out. So what is your damage? You know, like why, why can't you internalize that you are successful at least at this level? But I, I think that that just, and the other thing I will say is I, I know agent relationships are different but I would say that those are kind, those are feelings you can share with an agent. Those are, I mean, in an appropriate way that like you should have a relationship with your agent where you can be honest and, and forthcoming. And I mean, maybe not say like, I am an imposter, but like <laughs> you, 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 you should be able to be vulnerable because your agent is your advocate. Yeah. And, and your and, agent has heard it all before, like in a good way, I think right. they might be able to give you some perspective like, okay, you are actually famous. That's why. You're on right. this panel. Right, right. So, um, <laughs> so it's interesting that you actually mentioned the word midlist, and I'll tell you why. Because my next question has to do with just that. Mm. They say, can you talk about mid stuff on your podcast? I hear a lot about midlist authors and mid-sized publishers, but I don't have a good idea of what they actually mean. And those are two totally separate things. So I can start with mid-sized publishers. Mid-sized publishers are just publishers that are not the hugest, but also are not small presses. So it's exactly what it sounds like, just what it says on the tin. So, um, you know, your, your HarperCollins or, you know, Simon & Schuster are huge publishers. They are multinational corporations with many, many thousands of employees. Your, um, I don't know, whatever small beer press or something might have like three employees or whatever, you know, be tiny. A mid-sized publisher is probably independently owned. I would say like Chronicle is a good example of a mid-sized publisher. They make beautiful books. There's nothing wrong with being not huge. They are just smaller. And I will, I'll add to that, that I've had a very, very big range because I used to do poet. Well, I still write poetry, but I used to publish poetry and my first book was actually with uh, Soft Skull Press, which is a sort of smaller, like a substantial but small independent that's now under another umbrella. But but my first book of poems was with a tiny, tiny little micro press, what poetry people call a micro press, which is basically like someone working out of their living room using self-publishing tools to publish other people's work. It's um, like how I'm doing this podcast right now. That's exactly right. And and then and then I've been at Random House for a number of books, and I'm now doing a I, Orphan Island was with Harper Collins. But I also then have done books with Tricycle when Tricycle was still around, and Chronicle, and so like I I've sort of had this massive range. And I will say, how many copies a book sells, or what kind of publishing promotion you get, you know, what kind of marketing plan, that kind of stuff that you can get less from a bigger publisher and more from a smaller publisher. It just depends, depends on the book and it depends on the moment. Um, yeah, for sure. 
So I, there's, nef- there's nothing wrong with a mid-sized publisher or an independent publisher at all. Correct. And then uh, mid-list author. That's, so that's something that get, gets kicked around a lot, this phrase. But I'm afraid that a lot of people kick it around badly. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I've heard people say, well, they're just a mid-list author. Oh, no, that's terrible. Um, but the thing is, the fact of the matter is, almost everyone yeah. is a mid-list author. Like, people who publish books, almost uniformly, unless they are the 1% of people who are lead titles... They are regular authors. Well, and even somebody authors. who maybe was was at one point a best-selling author or won a major award can then be a mid-list author. Like, yeah, and you can have that, a spike in your career and then and then plateau and sort of live in mid-list land forever. And that also doesn't mean that you're not totally successful. I mean, you can still make plenty of money and sell plenty of books and be a comfortable mid-list author. It doesn't mean you're a failure in any way. It literally means you have a career. Right. I just think it's funny. It reminds me of middle class. Like people, I know people who are on food stamps that think of themselves as middle class. And I know people who make hundreds of thousands of dollars a year and think of themselves as middle class. Midlist is sort of the same thing that like. Yeah. Like there is a 1% of like uber success, you know, you're Neil Gaiman or something like that. And then everybody else is not that. Yeah. And that's okay. Right. <laughs> like, or you're emerging. Uh, like you're emerging until you're mid-list and then you're mid-list unless you're J.K. Rowling, basically. Yeah, exactly. I would say that. So here is a totally craft question, and I literally have no idea how to answer this. But you are a genius. So maybe <laughs> you will. I'll try. Um, so it's a, advice about middle grade. They say, any advice for keeping a middle grade plot moving quickly enough? Ah, this is the, so, so plot is sort of my, my hard place. It's the, is this the the part of the podcast that I should edit out? No, (laughs) no, it's not. It's, um, I think, but it's so funny. I think so many people struggle with this and actually I'm on the, the faculty of the MFA program in children's and, and young adult writing at Hamlin. And, and it's funny when we start to talk about plot, every single person on the faculty is like, Ugh, I'm no good at plot. Ugh, I'm no good at plot. And it's Laura Ruby and Anna Sue and like people I think, you know, Emily Jenkins, people I think of as being very, very good at plotting, you know, who are saying this. So I think we all struggle with plot. For me, for me, I have an exercise I do with students with like kids, like when I do a school visit, where we craft a character and then I send them on a journey. Like I, you know, we sort of draw a character arc on the, or a, a story arc on the wall. And then I basically just set the character in motion and then start asking the character, like, well, what, what, what do you do in this moment? And so in, in my experience, if the character is, it has enough of like an interior life, if you've done enough of that, like deep character development, then plot should come from your character's choices in any given moment, right? You should know your character well enough that if the house burns down, you know, whether the character runs in to save the baby, saves themselves you know, pours gasoline on the flames, like he sort of runs next door to the neighbor's house to call 911, like that you should know deeply, you know, you should know your character's Myers-Briggs basically and and be able to figure out what your character will do in any given moment, even if it's a small catalyst. And I often find that when the plotting isn't working like that, it's because you haven't really trusted your character's sort of choices, you know, like, or you haven't trusted your character to sort of have their own momentum or mm-hmm. you don't know your character deeply enough. That said, I remember I did an MFA in poetry myself, but I remember one of the fiction writers there 
talking about about plot and how hard it can be. This was for an adult fiction program. And I remember her saying, sometimes you just have to burn the house down. That like sometimes <laughs> you sort of stall out because you just like, it's literally the momentum is stalling out and you need something to act as a catalyst. And sometimes that something can come from outside. So in those places where like not enough is going on, sometimes it is time for a terrible storm. You know, sometimes it is time for, you know, a random stranger to show up and hold up the liquor store or whatever, like whatever is going, whatever, depending on the book, you know, like a dragon suddenly flies in and starts firing bombs at houses or something. So sometimes I think you can do random stuff, but I really, really do think that the most important thing in those moments is to go back to character development and make sure, make sure that you know exactly what your character would do in the situation. I have two things, if I can remember them. Let's see. So one is a million years ago, I think maybe around the time that we first met Laurel, I um, tried to do NaNoWriMo. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I could write a novel, no problem. And I am wrong, actually, because it's very difficult and quite boring. In my opinion. (laughs) So, (laughs) So, uh, and I found myself just trying to make word count by like, adding in like like taking away all the contractions right. <laughs> uh she is very 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 happy to be here anyway but one of the things that i noticed that was problematic is that i could write a scene that was full of banter and hilarious and delightful but then it was really hard to get them out of that room and onto something else right and i realized at that moment that a lot of times you just need to st- make them go like you just yeah. need to start in the next place so sometimes i find that when i'm reading uh manuscripts and whatnot that and even sometimes in books but usually it's an unpublished work that they just have a hard time with those transitions and that if they were to just go to the next place they right. would find that their plot moved much more quickly I have a tendency to have people wake up every morning at the beginning of a chapter. So it's, and it's a problem. It's like every single chapter opens with like, she opened her eyes and stared at the ceiling or like this morning over breakfast or whatever. And I think it is, I think it's an important thing to say that like, sometimes you just have to leap ahead and like two weeks later, they were at the carnival, you know, (laughs) two weeks later they were falling down a mountain or whatever. Yeah. Um, I get the waking up all the time. So here's the thing. Like, I trust that your character brushed their teeth and ate breakfast and got dressed and did whatever. Like, please get them out the door. I want to see where they're going. That is a pet peeve, but everybody does it. I did it in my dino rhyme. Related to that, I often find that if, if I'm feeling like there's static in a book, I will chop the chapters in half. So if I'm like on chapter six, I will literally go and see if I can segment those chapters into 12 chapters and sort of get myself into smaller, tighter units because there's something about the pacing of that, that it starts to pick up speed when the chapters get shorter. Uh, But then the other thing is, I feel like sometimes with plots, like in big terms, people, writers are writing a wonderful character and you love them, but they're not, they're either not giving their character enough agency, like things are happening to them, but they aren't, doing things themselves or they aren't taking action or else they are being too nice to their character. Like they aren't letting their character really get in trouble because they like them and I like Mm -hmm. them too, probably. But, um, but the problem is that that definitely slows your plot down. If you're not willing to let them get hurt or let them have an adventure or let them 
have to solve the puzzle themselves rather than just get an answer from somebody that can um, definitely slow things down. I I also think, I think that what you were saying before about like, I can write witty banter or whatever. I think that sometimes, and, and this is definitely not an all the time answer. This is a depending on the situation answer, but I like to play with prose. Like I can craft a nice sentence all day long. I can start with a hundred words and at the end of six hours of writing have 50 words on the page. Like Mm -hmm. I can play and tweak and tinker forever. And I think sometimes if you struggle with plot, I think sometimes what you have to do is really just kind of like almost like skim writing, like, like sort of like not sit and fiddle and come up with witty banter. You can always do that later. That's a, that's the kind of thing you can do on revision, but that when you're trying to get that junky first draft, that, that sometimes is where you're putting the, the sort of the scaffold in, you know, you're putting the bones into the story. And if you don't let yourself move quickly, if you don't let yourself just sort of write on impulse, it's like you get stuck in the prose and, and then that's what is happening. Um, Do you so use an outline yourself or anything? I outline, yeah, yeah, I did, but I didn't in the beginning. I feel like I outline a little more with every book. And I think it, you have to be willing to, like, abandon your outline. You have to, every single book I've written with an outline ended up in exactly the opposite moment than I thought it was going to end up in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've just started working on a new book, and the same exact thing is already happening. Like, I can see that the end isn't going to be what I thought it was going to be when I set the outline up. But that outline will sort of force your plot, you know, and will force those big character changes and things like that. Okay, so I've got one more question for you. All right. This is definitely author centric. How do you avoid creative burnout? Oh, well, I mean, you could not. Maybe you don't. No, I, of course I do. Um, (laughs) Or no, I mean, I think, well, so I I have a couple of answers to that. One is, I think it's really, really hard for us to accept, like, that, that sometimes you just have to have a fallow period. And I think, I think when I first started writing, sort of as a job, I thought that that was a BS thing people said when they were just too lazy to, to work. And I didn't believe in writer's block and I didn't believe that you sort of needed to fill the well. I thought that people who said that were fake, were, were covering for themselves being lazy. And then it's interesting, like the last few books I have had as I finished a novel, just I need time off. And I can't, like there has to be a several month period where I'm basically just, it sounds incredibly self-indulgent, but where I am wandering Target and taking bubble baths and binge watching West Wing reruns or whatever it is that I'm doing. And I really do like there's like literally a day where I wake up and I can't stand myself anymore. Like I'm so filled with self-loathing <laughs> at my laziness that I have to go write a book now. And, and as much as it sounds like garbage, I really think that for me that is part of the process that like I have to procrastinate for long enough that now I now the only way of kind of earning myself back in my own good graces is by sitting down and really putting my nose to the grindstone or whatever. So so number one is sometimes you just burn out for a little while. And I think you have to be gentle and sort of generous with yourself. And as long as you're not getting depressed, like as long as you're not really losing it, I think it's okay to take some time. Um, so and you to, say embrace creative yeah just kind of let like or or don't embrace the burnout but like do the self-care that you need to do to not be burnt out anymore and and set aside the idea that you need to write 2,000 words every day I'm actually increasingly I've done national novel writing month it has been both successful and unsuccessful for me I am at a point where in my life 
I don't believe in word count. Like I, that thing of 2000 words a day or whatever it is for different people, that just seems to me to be a way of writing. I have, that is the way that I have written books that are not published. And that doesn't mean that sometimes that's not productive, but at this moment in my life, that does not feel like the right way to write books. And the second thing that I do that helps me with burnout is that I work in multiple genres. So, and some, only some of them are for children. I also write essays for grownups. I have been known, I once made a terrible demo of country songs that I recorded nice. with some friends of mine who are musicians. No, they're awful. But oh, can we I, hear them though? Like, is uh, that a possibility? It, it, not right this second, because I would have to find an access. But yes, at some point, somewhere down the road, I will. I will share my terrible country songs with you. But I, I think that for me, when I can't write a novel, I can work on a picture book. And when I can't write a picture book, or I haven't had an idea for a picture book in a, in a number of weeks or whatever, then I will work on a personal essay about maybe even a personal essay about how I haven't written in a couple of weeks, whatever it is. The point is for me, I believe in the practice of writing. Like I believe it like, it, like as people do, you know, a yoga practice or a meditation practice, I believe that daily writing of some kind is important. That routine is important for keeping your sort of your sense of yourself as a writer, but that it doesn't have to be something you're going to publish. It could just be journaling. It could just be, you know, making limericks to go in greeting cards for your friends. Like it could be anything. I really just think that playing with words on a daily basis is important for craft. But that again, like if I can't write a novel, I can't write a novel, then I work on something else. And I think those two things hand in hand, like sort of being generous with yourself and forgiving yourself for the burnout. And also then trying to sit down and just write a hundred words, you know, just something in a notebook so that you don't lose your sense of yourself as a writer. I, I, I have had friends who've stopped writing and there's almost always a period where they're sort of like, I don't even know if I am a writer anymore. You know, it's been so long since I took this seriously. It's been so long since I published anything. And it's like, well, I've been a writer since I was eight years old. And for most of those years, I was not publishing. I was a writer right. because I had a notebook. That's, you know, mm-hmm. Harriet the Spy is a writer. And, <laughs> and But that's like, that's a fine model. Like sometimes you're Harriet the Spy, if you're lucky. <laughs> so that's, all the questions that I have, but I do want to ask you not about your books. This is not <laughs> self promotion corner. Oh, no. um, although everyone will go read Orphan Island and Charlie and Mouse, I know. But what are you obsessed with this week? What am I obsessed with? Like bookishly obsessed with? It doesn't have to be book, it could be anything. Like I'll tell mine. Okay. I am right now obsessed with true crime. Mm. So I'm listening to a lot of my favorite murder podcast and watching a lot of true crime documentaries. And the thing is, I, like most normal people, am very terrified of murderers. Yeah. But I'm very intrigued by reading about them, apparently. So I am like really diving deep into weird true crime. So if you have recommendation, yeah, I I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm that. so scared of it, but it's so interesting. I don't know. Yeah. I guess really I'm paranoid about not just murder, but psychopaths. I'm really paranoid about psychopaths because how do you know if somebody's a psychopath? There probably are and they're covering it up because that's what a psychopath would do. It's a nightmare. Yeah. So, so you know it's interesting. I'm not afraid of things the way I used to be. Well, that's nice for I don't, you. Yeah, I don't know what that's all about. At some point, I just maybe I've just accepted my, you know, my inevitable de- death, and so like, 
I'm not scared of it. <laughs> I don't have, but I, I have in my life had a lot of paranoia and sort uh-huh. of fear. And I don't have that right now. Maybe it's because you live in a city. I live in the country. So it feels like terrible things are probably sneaking up on me. Yeah, like, but I, feel I live like in a neighborhood where people get shot periodically. So you would think that I would well, be Well, like, yeah, but okay, there are other people around. Like, if you get in trouble, there are people that might be able to help you. I mean, I'd like, oh, if a bear comes into my yard. No, I'm that's fine. true. You should read. You've read The Canning Season, I assume. Have you read The Canning Season? I did. I only remember one thing about The Canning Season, though. Is it the bears? Uh, that uh, no, actually, I had, no. Right, I had forgotten. I had forgotten how many people get eaten by bears in that book. <laughs> Perhaps you uh, shouldn't reread it. I won't. Anyway. <laughs> uh, so what are you obsessed with this week? And it could be bookish or anything okay, else. So I have a couple of things that I'm obsessed with. I am, first of all, uh, well, one thing I'm obsessed with is not of my own choosing. And that is that my children are suddenly interested in something called Warhammer. Um, we've, we, we did Magic the Gathering. We still do. And then we layered into that Dungeons and Dragons, which we still do. But now they're interested in something called Warhammer, in which they put together it's almost like plastic models they put together these tiny little plastic pieces and then paint them and turn them into action figures which takes a huge amount of time and then i guess theoretically somewhere down the line they play a game with them but so this is all it's like all <laughs> they we talk about have it. they not gotten to the game part they're just no no the you literally need to put together hundreds of little plastic models with super glue and then paint them before you can even think about playing a game oh. so this is like overtaken my house there's like craft supplies everywhere and like little bits of felt and cotton balls as like, they're also making like a, like a board for them to play. I don't even understand it anyway. So most of the time in my life right now, I'm talking about Warhammer with my nine, my 10 and 11 year old kids. Um, so that's, but that's not like my obsession. It's just sort of an obsession that is affecting my life. Um, and the book that I have been reading that I'm sort of obsessed with and I've been going, it's one of those, you know, sometimes you go slowly. I've been going slowly Mm-hmm. Is actually an adult book, but it's an adult book called Caroline that follows the same journeys that the Little House on the Prairie books do from Ma's perspective. And it's, I know, so it, it's crazy. So it's like, it's like her, like, like I just read the scene where she like gives birth to Carrie with like, you know, a stranger lady helping her as like, Pa takes the girls to go collect Indian beads from the, it's, it's crazy. And all the problems, all the problems that attend to the little house books that we talk about politically are part of this book are problematic in this book. It it is. No, it absolutely, it absolutely includes and addresses the, her feelings about the native cultures that they're essentially stealing from. It, It is. Anyway, this is the point. It's like, I can't decide. I'm obsessed with it, but I can't decide if I like it or I don't like it. Like, I can't decide what I think about this book, how well written it is, or whether it's sort of politically acceptable or, I mean, but it's addressing those things. It's not, it's not like just glossing over the fact that she doesn't like Indians. Like, it's, it's digging into them, but it has the same kinds of issues around like her relationship with Pa. Like, Charles and Caroline have this really messed up relationship where he keeps wanting to go West and she is stuck doing that with him. And her life is horrible. Like, it's horrible. And I don't think I ever fully thought, I don't think I ever thought about how horrible her life must have been. But this book is, that's what it's about. It's like she's madly in love with her husband, and she thinks he's amazing. And also she completely resents him. And there's all this crazy (laughs) passive aggression. And like, 
Yeah, like, like totally. Like, like she's always doing all this work, and then Pa's like jaunting off to go, like you know, catch a, a rabbit or something, and he comes back like eight <laughs> hours later with a rabbit. He's been like wandering around with his gun in the woods or whatever, and she's meanwhile like you know washing all of the clothes and trying to get the I don't know mold out of the dugout or whatever it is. <laughs> like, anyway, it's it's a really interesting read. I, I I don't know if I'd recommend it. I picked it up as a as a you know advanced copy. And I, it was sort of a funny accident that I stumbled onto it, but I, it's been really affecting my, like, I think about it a lot when I'm not reading. So. Well, I guess that's good. I mean, I never had a, um, a relationship with Little House books. I didn't read them at all because I thought that prairies seemed quite boring. Yeah, but yeah for sure. And, um, and then I was not quite old enough for the show. So I remember some episode, that I'm sure it was probably in reruns, and it was um, a fire or something, and I got really scared, so I never watched the show. So, um, so yeah, I don't know, I don't know my little house, but I do know that it seems that a lot of people have problems with it. But it's maybe it's interesting if they're able to tackle those from a, you know, give it more perspective or something. Yeah, I don't know. I haven't. Let me. I'll finish the book and I'll let you know what I think. It. It. But anyway, it's fair to say that I'm obsessed with it. I. Okay. I don't know if I'm obsessed with it and love it, but I'm obsessed with it. Yeah, I don't love murderers. So yes, it's that's okay. true. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely don't love Warhammer. <laughs> there you go. Um, there all right. Is. Well, thank you very much for joining me, Laurel. My great pleasure, always. This has been, I admit, a bit of an experiment because I wanted to see if I could actually pull it together, record, and everything else. And I think it has been kind of successful, so I do plan to do more of these, including uh, talking with some marketing people has been requested, some editors, maybe some illustrators and more authors. So it's exciting. And um, if you're a Kidlet fan, I hope that you will continue to join me. My Twitter is at LiteratiCat, and you can find Laurel Snyder's Twitter at Laurel Snyder, very creative. And um, you can find her new book, Orphan Island, on bookshelves now. So please go buy it. <laughs> I am not her agent, so I'm allowed to say that. And oh, I guess I'd be allowed to say it no matter what. I'm not her agent. I'm just a big fan. Anyway, uh, thank you so much and see you next time. <laughs>